right, it is time for the Sons of History podcast. It's not time to work. Why? Because it's Labor Day. That's right. Uh, and if you are laboring on Labor Day, we apologize. Although it is Labor Day, and you're not supposed to labor, it's a bit of an oxymoron, but we're fine with it. We get the day off, right? Well, thank you so much for listening, and if you're not listening on Labor Day, happy Labor Day week, or happy post-Labor Day. Who knows? Maybe listening to this far into the future, and I don't know who you are, and where you are, and what you're doing. And when I say me, I... It's because it's just me today uh, with a special guest, Joshua Phillip. We'll get to him in a little bit. Alan is out on vacation. He is out in New England, uh, up in the Northeast, doing a bunch of videos and photos. He's also going to Holland. He's going to check that place out. Um, But if you haven't been on our Facebook page, he's been posting a ton of videos. Just really good History related about the American Revolution. As you know, our YouTube series is still going on with the American Revolution. I'm talking about right now our episode three, broken up into multiple parts, talking about the battles of the American Revolution. I am playing the role of George Washington. Alan is playing the role of Joseph Reed. It's all good, dandy, a lot of information, good laughs. You'll definitely want to check it out. But he's not here, but I will tell you this, he misses you very much. He told me himself. And um, you got to believe the guy. You got to believe the guy when he says that. Anyways, without further ado, let's go ahead and get this show started. Like I said, we have Joshua Phillip of the Epic Times. You remember him most likely uh, from a few weeks back in our conversation on the French Revolution. Ton of information, bit of a mind blower there, just so much there uh, that you can take and just sort of go on into your own research on the French Revolution and then how that sort of led into the rise of communist thought, um, the rise of socialism, Um, although you can sort of tie it back a little bit before that too, but man, that really sort of set the pace, if you will, on communism. So, anyways, you can go check that out. And before we get started, obviously we got to have our book and movie recommendation, of which I have my selections. We'll go ahead and start with the book. All right, so my book recommendation is Democracy in America. This is a classic. It's written actually by a Frenchman by the name of Alexis de Tocqueville. He actually wrote this During his stay here in the U.S., I believe somewhere in the 1830s, Um, and it does actually tie into the whole conversation we're going to be having today about journalism, because to an extent, he was doing a lot of investigating into the way America runs itself, and there's the good and the bad. He points it all out. Uh, It's a very large book, but it's definitely something that you'll want to check out. It's a classic, so... It's If you maybe don't know how maybe America runs um, or if you've got a lot of questions on, aside from using the Federalist Papers on the Constitution, but anyways, the, the Democracy in America book is one that stands really high above almost the rest of the books out there. So if you haven't read this book, it's not one that you're just going to sit down and just read through. But it does. He does make it easy because he breaks it up into pretty sizable 
are actually small chunks, uh, easily digestible, but it is a long read. So I will give you that. Take your time on it. Nothing to rush into. Uh, probably one of those books that you'll want to have on your nightstand and just give it a read. Um, bring your, your highlighter and maybe your pen with you and just uh, make some little notes there. But I highly encourage you to read this book. All right, the movie recommendation is The Post. Yes, the movie, The Post, about the Washington Post that was made in 2017, uh, starring Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep, two of my personal faves. And people actually say that sometimes I sound like Tom Hanks, especially Woody from the Toy Story. Hey, guys! So anyways, I'm not going to go into that. Really good movie. Uh, it talks about the Pentagon Papers, Vietnam, that whole situation going on. And I think that Steven Spielberg and the whole crew did a great job with this movie. I don't like the very end where they try to tie in uh, the Nixon Watergate scandal with it. It just is sort of, it. it's a forced correlation when there really wasn't that correlation there. But anyways, that's my selection for book and movie. So check them out. Obviously the post would be much quicker to watch and the book, take your time. All right, everyone, I've got on the phone with me Joshua Phillip of the Epic Times. He is an investigative journalist. We had him on the show just a few weeks ago uh, to discuss the French Revolution and the lingering effects of the, of the French Revolution on on today um, and how it sort of led to the rise of communism, how it led to sort of the Russian Revolution. We got into all of that. So if you want to go check that out, please do. Um, without further ado, let's give a round of applause for Joshua Phillip for being on the show. How you doing, man? Doing well. Yeah, we have some interesting stuff to talk about, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. All right, man. Well, we are going to be talking about um, the role of journalism um, and the state of journalism today, primarily in America. Um, I think a lot of listeners on both sides of the aisle, the left and the right, or the Democrats and the Republicans, conservatives, liberals, however you want to uh, put it, I think we see a, a chasm. It's not just a divide. It's a pretty large chasm that journalists, uh, media companies, they are covering stories um, that affect our lives in a very biased way. Um, and I want to First, get down to what we had discussed um, before starting the show was discussing the role of a journalist. What is the proper role of a journalist? And I know that you said that you've gone way back and you've done a lot of studying. Give us a bit of how you became a, an investigative journalist, but also how you came to uh, sort of understand what the proper role of a journalist is. Right. So I, my, my story is a bit unconventional. Um, I actually started writing for Epic Times and I was still a student. I was going to just, you know, just community college, nothing special. Mm -hmm. Most of my education, I guess, comes from, I guess you'd say, the school of hard knocks. <laughs> right. So, long, long story short, you know, I was, I was, you know, a student. I was sending articles once a week to Epic Times. Just figured I'd make it a regular thing. Being, I was trying to, you know, I was looking for a job as, you know, as a student. And um, in 2008, I, I got an offer to go to New York 
to go and do some, you know, do a summer internship. And while I was in New York, I got assigned to cover a, a very odd series of events that was taking place in one of the largest Chinese communities in New York. Uh, it's in Queens. It's a, and what was happening was that groups, large groups of people were physically beating, cursing at, attacking, spitting on, and threatening to kill other members of the Chinese community. Hmm. And it looked like a very organized attack where people were you know, waving uh, Chinese flags, people holding banners with Chinese writing that I had no idea was at the time. Mm-hmm. And the people they were targeting were Chinese dissidents of various types. They were targeting uh, Falun Gong practitioners, especially. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were targeting people calling for, you know, the Tweedong movement, which is the quit the quit the Communist Party movement. Uh, they were going after the democracy, pro-democracy groups, and they were going after the house or the house Christian types. Who were, a lot of them are part of the pro-democracy groups. Mm-hmm. Main targets are Falun Gong practitioners. And so, you know, I was a junior journalist thrown into this mess, <laughs> basically. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, and I'm hearing all kinds of crazy stuff. People are telling me these guys are all spies. People are telling me, you know, all this Chinese propaganda type stuff. I'm, I'm hearing everything. And I'm like, okay, what is the story here? And how do I find out what's really going on? And for, for those who don't know, Chinese, you know, Chinatowns, they're very hard to crack from the outside. Mm-hmm. I think even, I, I found, you know, even a lot of police, it's very hard for them to police in Chinatowns, which is why they have like, you know, sometimes community groups that work with police to help them kind of figure out how things operate. Yeah, I think, I think, yeah, I think Jack Nicholson tried to, to break through into Chinatown. He oh. had a hard time. So. <laughs> right, I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe you're, just because this is a history show, you're reading the beaches of why it is. Basically, traditional Chinese culture in traditional Chinese society, there was no government below the county level. The lowest level was the county magistrate. Mm-hmm. And so their system of government below the county level was through tongs, fraternal organizations. You know, tongs are like guilds or fraternal organizations. Um, families, um, you know, different organizations from the grassroots level. And so when they immigrated to other countries, they maintained those same structures. And so a lot of Chinese communities or Chinatowns, they're controlled by the Tongs. And the Tongs, you know, there's Tongs for everything. There's like, you know, in New York, we have the Beijing, you know, the Beijing Tong, Fukian American Association. We have all kinds of them. And you know, underneath a lot of these as well, you have street gangs. Um, for example, under the Fukian American Association in New York, we have the Fukchin Gang, one of the world's largest transnational organized crime groups. You know, human traffickers, you name it. They were the group that did the um, the Golden Venture human trafficking operation. It was a big ship that ran aground off the coast of New York. And, you um, know, a lot of people they were smuggling died because the waters were so cold. Wow. Um, you know, things like that. Anyways... So I, I'm there investigating all this, and it turns out that the Tongs are behind these protests, particularly Tongs that are controlled by the Chinese Communist Party, I find out. And I find out that, you know, basically I see that they're holding banners with the names of these Tongs, people with bull horns with the name of these Tongs. Um, found out that the Chinese Student and Scholars Association, another group controlled, a student group that's uh, financed by the, con- the Chinese conflicts. Yeah. was heavily involved. 
And I'm like, okay, why is this? Ha- you know, what's going on here? Why are the, why are these groups related to the Chinese Communist Party all involved in these attacks? And then suddenly, very similar attacks start in other other Chinese communities around the world, including you know Taiwan, Hong Kong, France. Yeah, you know, different. I think San Francisco. Yeah, San Francisco. Yeah, a few different places around the world. Yeah. And so it started looking looking like a concerted effort. Yeah. Same, you know, same targets, same form, same groups, all involved. And what I ended up uncovering through that investigative reporting, through I mean, pretty intense stuff. Like, you know, I had people threatening to kill me all the time. I, Wow, nice. you know, meeting meeting sources on you know dark corners of Chinatown. <laughs> you know? mm. um, I, I had a guy one time. It was you know Chinese man, Chinese guy. He said, um, you know, meet me on the corner of this street. A car is going to flash its lights three times. Hop in the car and we'll drive off and we'll tell you everything. <laughs> but dude, let me let me ask you a question. Like, and and I already know the answer. Uh, because I was a journalism student too, interestingly enough, started at the community college level as well. That is, that's not, I'm not even going to ask you the question. I'm going to make the statement. That's the dream of a future, of a college based, like college level student, like journalist who wants to be a journalist. He wants to be involved in that type of stuff. Like they want the adventure. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah, you know, you're, you're a little, you're a little more reckless at that age. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because you're like, man, I want to. Oh, I want to get knee deep into that stuff. And then I'm sure you like have a different perspective when actually you're doing it, and you're like, man, you know what? I really could get killed. I don't know if this is. <laughs> I don't know if this is is, is all it's cracked up to be. One one of my sources, he was a pro democracy activist and a House Christian. And you know, keep in mind, House Christians in China like the real Christians. Mm-hmm. Basically, there's this, the public state-run version of it, or or there's the one that actually is a true religion. State-run version of it, you can't recognize a power higher than the Communist Party. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, yeah, the, the, nine, the Ten Commandments are the Ninth Commandment. <laughs> you know, because the, <laughs> anyway, we'll get yeah. to that. But yeah, yeah, he was telling me, he was like, oh yeah, like they told me they, th- they hired a hitman to chop off one of my hands. And, you know, they slashed my, my car tires this morning. You know, I was dealing with stuff like that. Yeah. And um, long story short, I ended up uncovering what's called the the um, United Front work of the Chinese Communist Party. Basically, they have, a, they have a government branch called the United Front Department. And its role is to kind of work. It, it, its role is to basically create overseas forms of governance for the Chinese Communist Party to expand the, the governance of the Chinese Communist Party in the foreign Chinese communities. And so, basically, they operate through the consulates, the consulates approach the Tongs, which control the Chinese communities, mm-hmm. and tries to win their support over. And when, once they win them over, the leaders of the Tongs become like pseudo-local government officials for the, in, within their system. And they keep, they'll keep they keep tabs on Chinese people in those communities. They'll work on, you know... Um, compromising local politicians, local politics, and those kind of things. And so, you know, I was one, I, th- I don't know, probably one of, one of the first, if not the first, to really uncover that system. And, uh, you know, my reporting was cited in government reports. I, I gave a lot of talks on, on it. And I lectured to the, um, I lectured on this to InfraGuard, which is a public, you know, FBI program. I've lectured on it with, uh, at, uh, to a Harvard group before.
lectured on it to uh, a Harvard student group. I lectured on it to uh, Air Force Air Academy. And so, you know, I kind of cracked, cracked the code on what was going on with how the Chinese Communist Party controls overseas communities. And, that, that, and that's how I started my whole job as an investigative reporter, basically. Now that's, yeah, that's really jumping right in uh, into journalism right there. How long did it take you to, uh, I guess, get to the point where you're like, okay, now things are coming together? Because there's a long digging process uh, whenever you're going after something like that. How long did it take you to finally start saying, okay, this is all starting to make sense and you're starting to put, put things together. I, I published a big three-part series on it, and I think that was in 2009. Mm-hmm. And so it took about a year for me to figure out the whole picture. Yeah. And, and my reporting on that continued into about 2014 in, term, in terms of the fallout of it and different people who were involved and into you know different pieces of it I haven't covered and in but pretty much that, that led me into my later beats which were which were subvert you know subversion unconventional warfare uh, what you call unrestricted warfare which is kind of how the Chinese Communist Party uses non-military tactics yeah. as war like you know financial warfare culture warfare drug warfare all that you know cyber warfare mm-hmm. um, you know I was I was covering the whole cyber war thing before before it was you know, anyone was really on it. I think 2009, I was writing about Chinese um, hackers and stuff like that. And it was you know mid 2010 when I think Google pulled out of China and um, you know Operation Aurora, which were the Chinese cyber attacks against Gmail and stuff like that, became public. And so you know the cybersecurity story. I, I was on that ahead of time because of this coverage too. Yeah, and. Um, Anyways, you know, just I was well positioned where I, I kind of unintentionally became uh, one of, uh, I'd say, handful of experts on, on these topics. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, it also led me into doing a lot of historical research. Yeah. Um, you know, into subversion, into into how it evolved from Soviet tactics, into how it ties back to it ties back to and actually differs quite a lot from traditional Chinese warfare. You know, things like Sun Tzu, people know about the other ones as well. Yeah, I was going to say. It, 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 uh, it just kind of shaped my modern, my, more my current uh, view of these issues and how I cover these things. Yeah, definitely takes a step away from the art of war. Uh, it goes into a totally different level. Um, Something I was gonna when you when you were talking like when you're looking close enough at these at these groups that are doing something that like you see the flags and you're like I don't know what, I don't know what that that means I don't know the, the writing or whatever well something that I've noticed uh, with the rise of a lot of these um, protests and marches and things that are that are going on in the U S over the past couple of years um, I would say past really about past five years uh, they've they've increased substantially is I would look at photos and you could see a banner that people would be holding and underneath it would have either a name or or a URL. And I don't think a lot of people probably go and look at those URLs. I think they just they just see these pictures and they're like, okay, people are protesting. Um, and like you were saying a second ago, it's a very concerted effort. Uh, because these these marches and protests take place across the nation. Of course, I'm keeping it to the U.S., 
Uh, but you can go and, and look at places like Britain, you can look at France, um, and you can see the same exact thing. Um, but if you go, and this is really for the listeners, if you go and look at these URLs um, and pull them up online, you will notice that they are typically um, like hard left socialist groups um, or communist groups that are and you know quote unquote the like worker party type of stuff um, that that bring a lot of these people together and so it is a concerted effort so they've already got this group and just sort of knowing understanding the source of where a lot of these people are coming from and how they're getting together and doing these marches uh, almost almost on a whim it's what it seems like in a lot of in a lot of ways it's like almost on a whim it's like how do you get these thousands of people to come together and just out of nowhere, start marching. Because usually, um, you know, like back in back in the in the '60s, I mean, it took a long time to get like the Million Man March up. You know, it was like there was a lot of planning, and now it seems like you can get however many thousands of people almost with no notice and get them out. And but when you start looking at the source. You dig a little. You don't even have to really dig that much. You just go online and look at these um, these websites, and you're like, "Oh, okay." Now it sort of makes sense. But I, I don't want to jump into that. We've we've sort of covered that. Go into um, and I do want to talk about how long it took you to get you know that year long process. But first, before we do that, you had mentioned that you had gone to a lot of open source um, books. Um, and information about journalism going all the way back to, I don't know what dynasty in China, but go into that and give us, you know, sort of the, the history of a journalist. Yeah, actually, uh, real quick, if you don't mind, maybe as a journalist, I made, I made a, I made, I wanted to, I wanted to correct something I said in the previous episode I was on where you asked me about the origins of communism or the word communism. I think I said it was 18... 80-something or late 1800s. Mm-hmm. I meant to say 17, not 18. Oh, okay. Yeah, it, it was under the circle social. I think it was Restive de la Brune, um, the Rousseau of the gutter, they called him, who, who coined the term. Okay. But, but anyways, with that said, yeah, I was jumping into that. Um, well, in today's yeah, society, so, truth doesn't matter, right? We're all Nietzschean. Of course, 
people don't just want hard facts, they also do want to know how to understand the context of information. And it's, you know, I think traditionally it was in the context part that journalism was always somewhat fundamentally biased, which is why you often had you know, media of certain political camps going way back, back to you know, 1700s and stuff. Um, where, you know, usually different parties or different advocacy groups that ran newspapers. Mm -hmm. They would tell you, they they would tell you the story, but back then a lot of news was spread via word of mouth and a lot of the news reporting was more analysis of the situations. If we, if we want to trace journalism back to its origins, excuse me, um, we would look to the Peking Gazette, which started in the Tang Dynasty in China. And, of course, it had, it had multiple names. The Peking Gazette was just the last name. And about how, could, how, could, how far back is that? I, I want to say 1400. I, okay. I, I, you have to forgive me if I get the number wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was the 1400s. Okay. Um, basically, the Peking Gazette started as, it was imperial edicts. And so it was just news from the emperor, basically. <laughs> or, you know, news, news from the, the officials. And you can actually go back and read now translations of it, which are really interesting. Because when Britain was in was in Hong Kong, they were translating the Peking Gazette. And so you can find English translations, which are really interesting to read. Hmm. And basically, what it was is just a collection of short news articles or claims. And so, for example, you would have, um, you know, one official from, you know, X province in China saying, Oh, a local disaster struck today. We're working on relief efforts, so on. Another one might say, there is corruption in my district. This individual and this individual uh, were involved in it. Please, please, you know, please investigate. And of course, you know, these are like three paragraphs along. Oftentimes, they weren't really long articles. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some journalists, historians, who argue that that wasn't true journalism because it didn't have advertisements, it didn't have the entertainment side. In other words, it didn't reflect the modern newspaper. Yeah. Um, a lot, you know, so, and so yeah, I, I disagree with them. I think that was more true journalism where you're just telling people facts mm-hmm. and, you know, making, making claims that should be investigated, you know, credible claims that should be investigated. The, when we, we trace then the history of kind of the modern newspaper, we can go to Europe and, there, there's some interesting writings on this. If we, there's, a, there's a really old book called The Free Press, and it's actually a criticism of the printing press because they believe that printed news was, was a kind of degenerate form of understanding news. And the, the writer was arguing that word of mouth was more credible because you know when, it, when you're talking one-to-one, you know the credibility of the person you're speaking with, you know how you know you know whether they twist facts. In other words, you, your interpretation of news is based on the credibility and you know honor of the person you're talking with. And when you're reading a newspaper, they argued um, that that understanding of the individual telling you the story was no longer there. And I think the world has kind of you know moved from that where we kind of know the bias of the media. We know the bias of, of ex journalists. We know where they stand. Yeah. And so I think that has been resolved. Um, the way journalism evolved was, you know, mostly steady up until 
early America. No, no, I think no, not to take it back. Early nineteenth, well, early America, technically, because you know one of the reasons why we have in our constitution a defense of the free press, right, is because they want to, you know our founding fathers saw the importance of being able to criticize government. Yeah. And so, you know, media was being censored. There were, there were a lot of issues of this in the 1700s right, in Europe where you, you did have a lot of revolutionary societies coming up. You did have a lot of groups calling for, you know, the global revolution. You had a lot of newspapers run by very radical organizations. We, we, we went over some of these in the last episode where we talked about um, early socialists. We mm-hmm. talked about the early communist societies. A lot of these groups ran newspapers, and a lot of them were advocating for violent revolution. Right. But there were also, I would say, good versions of that where people did understand that you needed to be able to criticize government. Yeah. And you could even say that the, the Declaration of Independence was a very open criticism of government, which you know put targets on the heads of everyone who signed it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's an example of that. Um, but the news, the newspaper evolved into more of a self-sustained business model. And early newspapers, they had, you know, of course, editorial. You know, a lot, a lot of it wasn't straight news. Actually, a lot, of, a lot of the early newspapers weren't straight news. There were more interpretations of events around society. And oftentimes, a lot of the news was more like analysis than it was direct telling of stories. This changed later as kind of the big media started coming about, and of course, you know, I think they've fallen terribly from where they used to stand. But yeah, they changed a bit, or changed changed a bit where they started just kind of trying to tell you pseudo unbiased interpretations or pseudo unbiased statements on what was happening in the world, in addition to the more analysis type content. And early papers too, they had, you know, they were they were entertainment as well. Um, Pre World War Two, you had poetry in newspapers. Oftentimes, you had, uh, you know, you had fiction, you had, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Something happened after World War Two where it's almost like a, a certain innocence died in the hearts of, of people, and they no longer wanted poetry. They no longer wanted fiction. Maybe it was because the things they had seen were so far beyond fiction. There was kind of that age of wonder. Yeah. Um, somewhat came to an end. And what, what replaced that fiction was the nonfiction feature story, where people wanted... And, and, and of course, I would say that if you, if you go back and read early journalism, there, was a, there were great narrative storytelling elements. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, actually, some of the best columns columnists in those days were really good at that but I'd say the more in-depth long-form feature type story was something that came about after that and that that, ev- that devolved unfortunately into new journalism which started in the 1960s did, did you want to interject well no I you were you were mentioning long-form uh, pieces back in the day I, I assume you're talking about the muckworking journalists of like the early 1900s? Is it? Uh, well, n- not necessarily muckraking. I mean, there, there, I, I would say I would, uh, there were those, mm-hmm. but I would draw a line between those and the columnists. A lot of times the columnists were people who worked on beats, and they would often tell the stories of what took place within certain environments. So, for example, uh, I think it was Ernie Pyle 
was one of the guys embedded with the Allies during the during the landing of D-Day, and his writings on D-Day were incredible. Yeah, um, you know, he he really tells a story of how the the estimates on what we thought we'd lose in that battle, the preparations that the Germans went through to prepare for the Allied landing, and how really against really in a battle that we should have barely won was was won with significantly fewer losses than were expected. I, I think um, reading that, it re, you know, reading his articles, it really got a sense of what was taking place mm-hmm. through what he was seeing on the ground. He was telling you what he was seeing. Um, there, there, then, there, of course, there are muckraking journalists who are more opinionated and more going after people. It was, it was a different type, I'd say, right. that did exist. But I'd say muckraking and that, that type of journalism kind of became the staple around the 1960s. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, of course, a, lot oh, of, a lot of those, uh, those writers were, it was that part of that progressive movement in, in journalism uh, in the 19, early 1900s. Um, and they were going after sort of the, the workers' rights um, type of issues. Um, but uh, aside from whether you like agree or disagree, because there's plenty to agree with, there's plenty to disagree with on how they went about things and what was done. Um, but I think that was a time, obviously, where people sat and, and read these thorough pieces. I mean, these, these journalists would, would go on, you know, go off for months and research and, and speak to people and put together these massive tomes almost these these large pieces with all this information um and it just seemed like people were more informed because they wanted to be informed they took the time to actually read long pieces and not just that people took the time to read them but journalists actually took the time to write them um, and as you said, I think that, you know, new journalism of today and especially of today, um, we've gotten away from really writing long pieces and to an extent you're, you're writing for your audience as you know, in journalism school, that's, you're not so much taught, you know, to write for your audience. You're sort of taught, Hey, write at a sixth grade level, um, write at the level that everybody can understand. Um, when it comes to fiction writing, you're write for your audience. I think those two things have sort of intertwined and you're writing for your audience um, and you're trying to match a certain, certain ideal. Is that your car? (laughs) Outside. Sorry. I'm working from home. No, it's just, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, no, that's all I'm saying is that it seems like we have gotten away from long, long tail journalism or long piece journalism because we know that today's readers are not going to sit down and and read a long, thorough piece. Or at least we are under the impression that that's the case. Um, whether that is absolutely true, um, I think is probably just uh, obviously a case-by-case basis. Yeah, so... I- Real, real quick, anyone wants to read some of the, the old columns I mentioned? Mm-hmm. Uh, there are two great collections of those. They're published in books called Deadline Artists. And they, they go back, you know, early 1900s. They collect a lot of the columns and uh, really good books. Um, yeah, it's, it's just you say, republishing of the old columns. What, what are those called again? Deadline? or uh, 
Deadline Artists. Okay. I think there's two of them. They're, yeah, they're really good books. I mean, it's just collections of columns, but they're, they're interesting to read. But yeah, anyways, what you were saying about the nature of the long-form journalism and the way it changed. The way it changed was, whereas the early, at least in my interpretation, in the early writings, it was an actual telling of what was happening. And of course, that, that is sometimes limited by, that's of course limited by the knowledge of the journalists, limited by what they're seeing, and limited by what's around them as they report. But that, that devolved into new journalism in the 1960s. And new journalism was long-form, long-form journalism, but it was advocacy mm-hmm. journalism. And so it worked oftentimes through what you call minimization, which is where you... Okay, so let, let me break this down. So basically it follows like scientific method is the way a lot of, a lot of you know, New York Times, a lot of their reporting uses scientific method as its basis. And what is that? You start with your thesis, right? Mm-hmm. And then you go and, you know, report things based around your thesis to form your article. And so in other words, the thesis is usually a political agenda for them. It's, it's a, you know, a, a recent attack took place in X community. A person was shot in X community. Normally that'd be crime reporting. In this, they say, oh, a person was shot in X community because of, you know, racism. Yeah. A person, you know, did this because of racism. A person did this because it represents this bigger political issue in society mm-hmm. that we're trying to validate. And so they'll begin with their thesis as that. And, they'll, and then when they go and report and do interviews, they'll ask the, the questioning process is based around a thesis. Right. Do you, do you believe this shooting that took place has to do with institutional racism? And of course, you know, they're interviewing, they'll, they'll cherry pick professors who specialize in those topics. And they'll be like, oh yes, of course, institutional racism. Yeah. And then they'll go back and they'll tell the story of this, you know, person who grew up in this neighborhood and how racism was all around them and racism was the cause of violence and how X policy currently being pushed through Congress is the solution to this and so on. Um, it, it, it's very misleading journalism because it begins with a conclusion. Yeah. Mm. And if you if you were to ask me the way I do reporting and the way we do it at the times is we don't start with a conclusion. We we ask people what the story is. We ask them what happened. We ask them about you know what their side of the story is. We ask people involved in it, and we just tell you what they said and what happened. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, in, in other words, you, you collect information. This, this is the way I approach journalism. You do the reporting first, and then based on what took place, I try to relay as accurately as possible what took place. Yeah. And so, in other words, you, you're not beginning with any kind of agenda. You're, you're just trying to tell people the most accurate the most accurate way of how... In other words, how could I tell this in a way... It will give the reader the most accurate understanding, mm-hmm. and and that. But I, and I think that other path is the way that journalism evolved. Actually, I just had an interesting discussion. I was on a TV, a, you know, smaller TV show called that, Bold TV, and we were talking about, you know, some of the issues today in journalism. And 
one thing we got into is, of course, at Epic Times, we're seen as having a lot of pro-Trump content, mm-hmm. you know, right. and I, I, was, I was clarifying, I was like, well, you know, our policy is, we, we don't go after people, we don't muckrake, we don't target people. Yeah. If you go back and read our coverage, even of Obama, we didn't, we weren't really critical of him that much. I mean, unless he did something serious and we just tell people we did something serious. Yeah. You know, and, and for a lot of media, they believe that they need to twist information mm-hmm. to. Okay, so here's the issue with Trump, for example. And he's a good example of it. A lot of journalists believe that he is unredeemable, that he's a racist, that he does all these bad things, that he says things he shouldn't say, mm-hmm. and that every and they they just think he's a bad guy. Right. And so they they believe that if they say anything that gives the readers the impression that he's not a bad guy. Mm-hmm. In other words, talking about his successes, really telling, actually telling you what he says in the context of what he says. Right. That, in other words, if readers read information, read what he says, read what he's doing, and understand the context of it, they might come to the conclusion he's a good guy, and because they fundamentally believe he's not, and their interpretation of being irresponsible because they think that you know they have this they have this impression, and they don't want to show you otherwise. Yeah. Um, and so for them, that you know, that that's also there. There were movements around this as well, and kind of how journalism evolved. They, they believe that you need to present information in a way that shows the proper, you know, interpretation that that doing otherwise is is irresponsible. That that that's just the way they approach things. So when they're working, you have, you have people with very clear political agendas, very clear political interests, and they believe in very clear political outlooks, and they believe that showing you anything that doesn't paint the world picture that they want you to see is irresponsible. I guess because, um, you know, that, that's, that's how they see it. From a, in other words, the narrative is more important than the facts, you see. The narrative is more important in their eyes. I guess you could call it journalistic protectionism. Yeah, basically. And so you, you see, actually, I had an interesting call with a long, you know, old-time radio host. He was telling me this. He was like, you know, the way media works these days, narrative is the main thing facts yeah. don't matter facts are flexible mm-hmm. the narrative is the important part because what they're trying to show you is this world view yeah and for them that is the most important part is, is the narrative and the interpretation um at epic times in the way i and you know of course in the way i approach journalism is the opposite we say that the facts are the most important you know the narrative the narrative should follow the most accurate representation of the facts. In other words, the narrative is based, it's facts first, and the narrative is whatever the facts lead to being the most accurate picture of the situation. Mm-hmm. And in other words, we, we, we think, how can I most accurately tell people this, which will give them the most accurate picture of what actually happened? And so, you know, when it comes to our Trump reporting, we just tell people what he says. We just tell people what he did. And, and of course, that's being interpreted as, uh, you know, supporting him or being, you know, pro-Trump content. And I'd I'd say if there is any commentary, it's usually on the journalist, him or herself. And, you know, of course, we discourage opinion like that unless it's an opinion piece. And, you know, usually in our paper, if you have any opinion, you're going to get labeled opinion anyways. Our, our editors are usually pretty discerning with that. Yeah, as, as I continue to read 
different publications from the Washington Post, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, National Review, whatever. Federalist, you know, the Federalist, um, and just about every publication, I have a hard time differentiating between, and I think you sort of sum this up, but differentiating between straight news pieces and opinion pieces. Uh, and I've gotten to the point where it feels like there is no difference anymore. And you you hosted uh, your recent, you know, your, your show Crossroads. Uh, you guys were talking, or you're talking about Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius said, all is opinion. So are we, are we back at that? Like, everything is opinion and that's okay? Well, you know, it, it's, it's a difficult position because pe- reporters can only report things as accurately as they can see which is why you have the process of reporting. In other words, if if a journalist doesn't do research, if they don't interview people, if they're not looking at both sides of an issue, um, they're not going to have a complete view of the story. And I I would say a lot of media these days, they they only want to interview people within their political camps. They don't want to look at the other side. And, of course, a lot of them have very strong biases, which... um, you know, they have kind of knee-jerk reactions to the other side's opinions. Right. Uh, is it possible for people to not, you know, write within their worldview? I don't know. Um, it, it, it's complicated. I mean, so for example, one thing at Epic Times, we're, we're criticized of sometimes being very anti-Chinese Communist Party. Mm-hmm. I would say that's a justified position for a regime that is killed between... You know, 50 million and 70 million people, yeah. and, uh, and which you know continues to pretty brutally persecute people today, like the Uyghurs and Falun Gong practitioners. They're using as living sources for organ transplant. Yeah, so it's justified. But and and but you know, basically, our basis of reporting on it is that you know we have a lot of Chinese expatriates who work for us and people who you know lived under it, and we have a lot of sources in in China. Is that you know we, we know we know what the real story is in China. We know you know how a lot of their surface statements are untrue. Mm-hmm. And so if if we were to tell people just what they're saying without explaining the context or background of what they're saying, is that being responsible to our readers? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think it is. And. You know, in, in any anyways. So, you know, in other words, do you do you let someone lie to your readers? Do you do you let lie? Do you do you state something you know is a lie um, without without properly explaining the background of that story? Yeah. And so this this is this is an issue because you know what it, what was the the question that Pilate asked Jesus when he was on trial? He said, "What is truth?" Right. Right. And truth, the ultimate truth question, is, right is, there. Yeah. One of the age-old questions: What yeah. is true? And I would say, in my interpretation, truth is something with many layers. Mm-hmm. And to understand the truth of a situation, a responsible journalist needs to do a lot of research. Um, which is why, in my work, and I, I encourage journalists around me as well to not just study issues, but also to, stu- to study the history of issues. Correct. To study how issues developed. To study the you know. The deeper, the deeper parts of the story, to not just get stuck in the surface part. Yeah, and and I think journalists these days have trouble with that because a lot of journalists don't really stick it out for more than a couple of years. 
Um, a lot of them are on very strict deadlines when it comes to, say, breaking news. A lot of them, they don't treat it as their passion in life. They, it's, it's a nine-to-five job, and mm-hmm. they don't go home and, you know, read books on you know, geopolitics or something. Yeah. You know, you know the... Um... The Apostle Paul, we we always end our our podcasts on a, on a scripture, so we you, we institute a lot of that into you know. Well, Alan and I are both Christians, um, but there's a scripture um, that Apostle Paul says that you know study to show yourself approved, rightly dividing the word of truth. I think a lot of uh, media companies could probably label that as their their motto, or should label that as their motto. And like you're saying, it's it's a multi-layered thing. You have to rightly divide the word of truth, which is, you know, where is everything coming from? You have to dig down and and sort of cut a you know cut open and see exactly where the truth lies. Uh, and I think that's something that uh, there's not a lot of going back and understand. I think there are a lot of journalists today, and and, and sadly enough, I think there are a lot of politicians, Congress people, and even possibly even senators who don't even know really the history of, of this country. And sometimes I feel like, especially in the house of representatives, there's a lot of uh, reps who, who have never even read the declaration of independence, but definitely not the constitution. Um, and it just, you know, you hear certain terms, certain things thrown out, um, misrepresentation of maybe the amendments, uh, misinterpretation of the branches of power and the separation of power. And it's just like where, and, and it goes back to, you got it. You got to study the, the history. And if our politicians are not doing that, I think it almost opens up and I don't want to get off track as I think this could easily lead into a completely different conversation. But if our politicians are not doing it, uh, I, I think to an extent it sort of gives, um, it gives journalists a, a a way out to not have to do it either. It's just like, well, if our leaders are not doing it, then we, why should I have to? But I don't want to. I don't want to get into that. I want to jump into um, the the sort of the the rise of, of of a few things that have that have taken place over the past twenty plus years, um, which is the rise of the twenty four hour news cycle, um, the rise of the internet. And then the rise of social media, and sort of in that order. And the way I see it, and you can uh, you can jump in whenever you want to. But the way I see it is, the the tw- when CNN started the twenty four hour news cycle. Uh, one, my grandfather was he was always watching CNN. He was always because he was he was a he was he was a Bible teacher. He wrote a book on the Book of Revelation. And he was always studying, and I've got still a ton of his his clippings uh, from newspapers. And so he was always studying and keeping up. And he loved the idea of the 24-hour news cycle because it was he loved that little ticker that would go go under, and he would write stuff down. But the the 24-hour news cycle requires that you have something fresh on a constant basis. And then it even made it worse when the internet came out because now you've got to keep content fresh, right? You've got to keep you know new new pieces coming out. And yes, there there's stuff going on all the time that you can cover, uh, but if you're covering stuff all the time, you, typically you're not covering it very well. 
because you're wanting to just push it out real quick. And it's much easier on, on the internet to make edits and corrections than it was in a newspaper. Because in a newspaper or magazine, once you printed it, that son of a gun was, was out there. Um, there was no turning back. And then you had to print a retraction, however much later. Um, but now it's gotten so easy that you can you can just put stuff out there. If you make a mistake, like, hey, uh, this mistake, and you, you put it at the bottom. Um, it's I don't want to say it's equivalent to the page 14, but you know it's at the bottom where you put the retraction. Uh, and then you have the social media, which sort of is like, okay, everybody is getting their news, sadly, via Twitter. At the 140 characters, which is now 280 characters, thank you, Twitter, for you know making it so long. Uh, it's practically a, a column piece. Um, but it's it now it's even worse at the constant level. So, and that's infiltrated journalism. And how do journalists get back to? And and will we ever get back to sort of taking our time on on pieces instead of uh, reporting the news via Twitter? Well, it, it, I'd say the yeah the twenty four hour news cycle made it so that not not only did they have to constantly come up with stories, but they had to keep people constantly watching. Right. Keep in mind, you know, something like what ninety percent of news is run by like six corporations or something like that. Mm-hmm. And actually, you know, the history that's interesting too. That how a lot of this this goes into the whole banking systems and you know. Federal Reserve history and stuff like that, where basically the banks start buying control of the business of the uh, news industry, and how that that changed the nature of news, where it was no longer really independent. A lot of a lot of news began serving kind of the yeah interests of the company that owns them, so so to speak. And uh, you know, when, when, for example, when it came to promoting the idea of centralized banking in the U.S. and things like this. Yeah. There's a long history of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so when you're dealing with 24-hour news cycles, you're talking about ratings, you're talking about shareholders, and you know, they, how do you keep people engaged? Is you, you keep them shocked, you keep them, yeah. you keep them you know, worried, you, you, you have to hit on their emotions yeah. somehow. And so you end up getting a lot of... Uh, sensational journalism, you end up getting a lot of stuff that blows stuff out of proportion. You get a lot of non-stories that are emotionally jarring in some way. And I think it it messes with people's worldviews, where they start to think that that's just how the world is. Um, and oftentimes, the way that what they're being shown does not really reflect how, how things actually are. Uh, and, it, and it's because they're being shown a more kind of high pressure, you know, in their agitated version of, of what's taking place in order for these people to maintain their rating. And I think that same kind of, that same type of journalism didn't hit print, you know, the broadcast journalism type stuff didn't hit print really until the, the internet began. Yeah. And internet news started taking over. Because then, you know, media started, you know, with the way Google works, you know, for a while it was whoever got the story first would be at the top of Google. Yeah. Whoever, whoever got, you know, whoever published first. And so it was this race, you know, to get the first story out and get it on Google. Yeah, even if it was um, wrong. Yeah, even if it was, and you had that a lot. You, you have some media 
where they were just publishing headlines and there was no story and there were like updates to come in, in the article body text. Yeah, exactly. You know? And that's that's how yeah. that's what I was saying. Like it became Twitter reporting. Like it became nothing but headlines. So you don't get the you don't get the whole story and it, it, it got to the point where you got so many likes and so many retweets and so many comments. I think journalists and, and media organizations came to the point where they're like, oh, man, maybe we don't even have to do, you know, actual investigative pieces. We can just put out people are just reading headlines. Yeah, well, and, and, and that's what started happening. And then, of course, you get them realizing that they need clicks. Oh, and yeah. So how do you get clicks? It's, it's, you know, headlines that don't actually tell you the story. And so you have to click through in order to find out what the story is. It's, um, you know, headlines that misrepresent information to sound to make an issue sound like it's bigger than it is. Yeah. Um, it's, it's the race for the updates on the story because, you know, of course, as you update the story, you, you know, you, you keep that cycle up. And, of mm-hmm. course, that, that, that's the 24-hour news cycle as well. You want updates. And so you get unverified information. You get unnamed sources. You get people making the wildest claims they can find because that's what keeps eyeballs on it. Yeah. And, you know, it's terrible, in my opinion. And uh, Anyways, but the, fun, the funny thing we have now is where we have a lot of independent news outlets started up where they, they are trying to really just tell the stories. Mm-hmm. And funny enough, YouTubers now are, a lot of them are kind of playing the role that journalists used to play. Yeah. Where rather than just cover the surface news, they're analyzing the topics, and people are just, you know, rushing to them. Yeah. And so I, I think that as, as the big media moved away from what journalism was, a lot of people are, kind of, you know, basically big media now it's sensational news topics, misleading misleading stories, things you know defending the interests of business, things defending the you know very narrow worldviews sometimes mm-hmm. these people have. And, you know, then you have YouTubers that come up who just, you know, oftentimes have very clear right. opinions on the world. But, but you know, I think because maybe they're a bit more humble, um, you know, they're willing to talk about the context of information. They're not, they're not afraid of that. Um, and they're very clear on where they stand. But, you know, people rush to them because that's the only place you can get the real kind of story of the story of what's taking place now, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I think people aren't huge fans of being lied to um, or at least being manipulated. Uh, so you've got, yeah, YouTubers are doing the job of what journalists do and journalists do not like that. I think we've we've seen that here even over uh, the past couple of weeks, couple of months. I think uh, President Trump has had YouTubers come on um, and influence come on to the White House lawn. He had that, that big session with all the... Uh, the influencers um, and YouTubers and journalists don't like that. And for quote unquote, good reason. I remember when I got into, into journalism, I graduated in 2006 and jumped in, (laughs) jumped into journalism right before the recession hit. Um, And man, you talk, you talk about like bad timing to get into a career like as I'm getting in, all the newspapers are going out, and I was like, "Man, you you got to be kidding me!" And I was able to be given a bird's eye—not even a bird's eye view. I was actually like a ground level view 
of what was happening in journalism and how it had changed. And as I had referenced at the beginning of the show, at the beginning of this conversation, that we got into journal journalists get into journalists. Journalists get into journalists. I don't know about that. That's a that's a sexual thing. I don't I don't want to jump into that. That's a little odd. Um, journalists got into get they get into journalism for the sake of I want to break open these big stories. I want to put you know I want to put politicians behind bars who are you know doing certain things wrong. I want to I want to break open these big stories. And then you get in and you're sort of humbled by the whole idea of like, oh, this is how you get started. Well, that's fine. You need to have those humble beginnings. You need to start at the ground level. I was seeing, okay, all these newspapers are going out and the internet is taking off as well as social media. And now newspapers who thought, I guess, that they could just continue to do what they wanted to do. And I remember hearing and reading so often these, you know, media gurus and um, CEOs and edit editors and everything. They're like, people will always want to have a newspaper in their hand. Just like, well, that has been proven wrong. Um, yeah, there's still the printed newspaper, but people want to just have it in their phone too. So you got to get on board. And there were so many newspapers that were late to the game that they just they went out of business. And then all of a sudden, they had to figure out how to compete with social media. How am I going to compete with Twitter? And like you said, it turned into clickbait, which soon enough, I think it was in 2013, 2012, somewhere in there, I finally was like, I've had enough. I was in journalism for about seven years, and the media company that I was working for in downtown Houston, it got to the point where I realized, we're doing nothing but creating clickbait. And that's all anybody cares about because it became, you were, your advertisers were paying for clicks. How many clicks could you guarantee? Could you guarantee 1,000, 10,000, 20,000? And that was what it was. And you had to create these headlines that were so sensational and they may either misrepresent the, the full article or not represent the article at all, and I was like, I don't, I don't even want to, I don't want to be a part of this. Um, and it became a real turnoff because it turned into how many clicks can we get? And so I got out of that. I still love, I still love the idea of journalists, uh, journalism. I love the the pure idea of it, but we are where we are because there was just a perfect storm, if you will. And you had, it was the rise of the internet with the recession, with social media, and then all these businesses going out of business, all these newspapers going out of business. And they had to figure out how do we, because we now have to get away from traditional advertising. How are we going to make our money? And it turned into, we'll sell our journalistic soul, our journalistic integrity to make money. And that's that's where we are today. That's what. That's how I view it. I may be wrong. You let me know. But that's how I view it. It's like we we sold out journalism in order to survive. It's true. I think with a, with a lot of media, that's exactly what happened. I think Epic Times probably one of the reasons why people are you know, we're getting so many subscribers now yeah. because we didn't really 
you know, of course, we, we have we have but we we didn't we didn't draw a conflict between web and print and you know phone and all that. We we just said, oh, there's a new channel. Let's use that. Oh, there's a new channel. Let's use that too. Um, you know, we we still get quite a lot of newspaper subscriptions. Uh, we we find that people still want a newspaper. I, I think the reason newspaper subscriptions dropped is because. You know, younger people, I think, tend to not read them as much, mm-hmm. but the older generations do. Um, so we get we get a lot of subscriptions from them. Yeah. Um, but also because I, I think the main thing is that they it's not that they don't like newspapers; they just don't like the newspapers that are out there. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that, that may have something to do with it. But uh, you know, at the same time, what what we do is we have you know, there's the we, we do a bit of viral content, but not 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 nearly as much as most publications. And we, we keep it separate from the news content. Um, we have, of course, breaking news. Who did, you know? They just tell the facts. This, this is what happened. This is what they said. Whatever. Yeah. And then we have the people who do more in depth ones, and oftentimes uh, beat journalists. You know, they might do a breaking news story and then do a more in depth story on it over the next couple of days or something. Yeah. And so I, I think because we didn't draw a conflict between these things, I think that. You know, we didn't sink when all that stuff happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, another, another issue, actually, that's an important part of all this that I think doesn't get discussed as much is also the issue of intentional disinformation, mm-hmm. which is out out in the media sphere. Um, there are many, many forces behind this. Uh, we can go back to Edward Bernays and his book Propaganda in the early 1900s which formed the basis of modern advertising and of modern political messaging. And basically he said that psychology, you know, I mean, not his exact word, but psychology, the way people view the world and the way to shape these things is kind of the, the unseen true power within politics. And, you know, of course, big businesses have their marketing branches, which, you know, tell their story. politicians have their story you also have different political movements around the world that all have something they're trying to advocate for you had the whole history of Soviet subversion and disinformation a great book on this is a book called Disinformation by Ihan Vihai Pachepa and Ronald Reichland talks about how the Soviets uh, did a lot of they, they basically start up think tanks non-profits in the United States use them to produce false reports and then uh, have them approach big news outlets to get those false reports published and you know, interview them and so on to push mm-hmm. Soviet in- interests. These days you have the Russian, groups like the Russian Internet Research Agency, you have the Chinese Communist Party and all of its propaganda mouthpieces. They mm-hmm. have a military program called the Three Warfares, which are psychological warfare, media warfare, and legal warfare. In other words, psychological warfare to manipulate how you interpret information, mm-hmm. media warfare to control outlets of information, and um, legal warfare to manipulate uh, legal systems in different countries. And in other words, people are being bombarded with false information, you know, misinformation, you call it, disinformation, which is oftentimes trying to alter your conclusion mm-hmm. on what can be, it can be true information, but you can alter the conclusion or interpretation of true information. Right. It can, or, or it can use things like false flag incidents, you know, fake events to, to alter your worldview. 
and just propaganda, you know, things to to elicit an emotional response. And people are people are being bombarded by this, and a lot of journalists they don't know how to see through it. They don't know how to you know navigate it, and some of them are just part of it, yeah. knowingly or not. And and you know, of course, another thing you have is what you call like above and below strategies. We talked before about you know protesters that look like they're grassroots, but in reality they're they're organized by a different group. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great book on this by David Horowitz called The Shadow Party. And it talks about how George Soros kind of bought control of the Democratic Party. And keep in mind, he wrote this before George Soros was a well-known name and before any of this was really, you know, un- really well understood. He wrote this when it was not contentious. Yeah. But it's a very interesting thing to read. He talks about how they do what's called the above and below strategy. Mm-hmm. And what is that? So a, a, a group has a clear political goal. That group may also have you know, fi- you know, influence over a politician, either through finances, personal connections, or ideolo- ideology. And they're lobbying them to get, you know, let's say they're lobbying that politician to get a policy passed. Or, you know, say that that politician's working with them because, you know, a lot, a lot of policy is not really written by politicians. It's usually written by third-party groups. Think Correct. Tank, so yeah. on. even a lot of laws, in fact, are not written by politicians. They're mm-hmm. written by, um, you know, kind of non-government, non-elected groups. It's unfortunately the way our system these days works. But what they'll do is they'll go and stage an event, stage a protest, right? And they'll make it look like there's a grassroots movement suddenly moving around this issue. Mm-hmm. Then they'll have, you know, a journalist, they'll pitch it to a journalist or the journalist is working with them or getting paid. And that journalist will write this sob story telling about how this issue is representative of this and how this is what needs to happen, you know, such and such policy is what needs to be done. Then they'll take that policy and bring it to that politician and they'll, that politician will point to the incident on the ground and say, the people want this, the people yeah. demand it, we need to pass this. In other words, in, in politicians sometimes too, the way politics works is they'll you know, plant information, the information will get reported, and then they'll point to the reporting to validate their own statements, even though they were the ones who started the discussion in the first place. Exactly. And so this, this is you know, the whole above and below system. And another issue you have is where people are being emotionally manipulated. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of politics, you know, for example, under communism, there's agitation propaganda, as they call it. You know, things meant to elicit an emotional response. Right. Under fascism, I think it was Mussolini talked about having people think from their reptilian brain. He wanted people to think emotionally and not logically. Yeah. And if we get into... You know, of course, uh, one of the things that modern journalism does is it tries to agitate you emotionally so you have emotional connections and memories with certain political issues. And so how, how does that work? Uh, we can look into the way psychological warfare works, uh, into the way, say, for example, like Pavlov's dog type theory where you, um, you, know, you ring a bell and the dog salivates because... Right you've conditioned the dog to, to salivate the sound of a bell by, you know, showing it food at each time you ring a bell and so on. You can cause people to have the same reactions to news topics if you agitate them emotionally. So, you know, for example, if, you, if by using new journalism 
someone tells a story about you know immigration, but instead of telling you about border policy, they tell a story about you know a family crossing the border, mm-hmm. and they take you on this long emotional journey yeah. where they cause you to empathize with someone. Mm-hmm. And in other words, the person then has an emotional memory. They feel that they've gone through an experience, and they've been told to react in a certain way to that issue. Journalists do this repeatedly, and so people reading those publications will start to have those those emotional reactions to political issues. And, journal, and, and politicians are privy to this as well, because a lot of them, they'll latch their policies onto, say, um, different social movements. And so this policy is representative of you know, the plight of the, you know, immigrants, and if you oppose it, you are a racist. Yeah. And so if, if you oppose the policy, you're accused of hating the group they have latched the policy onto. Yeah. You know, it's very, very tricky ways of manipulation they use. If we go deeper into this, we can talk about the cycle of meaning and how people interpret reality through symbols. And this goes into symbology. And this ties into psychological warfare as well. So what is, what is the cycle of meaning? It's a, it's a theory that people do not interpret reality as it is. People interpret reality as a set of symbols which elicit different meanings. So, for example, if you were to see a crucifix, if you were a Christian, you will, you know, if you're not a Christian, you're going to see two pieces of wood overlap. You know, you're, there's no meaning to it. Yeah. Um, if it, if it has a picture of you know Jesus crucified, you might just see a guy nailed to some wood, right? There's no interpretation of it. Mm-hmm. If you're a Christian, you will see that as a symbol of salvation. You see, um, everything in your life elicits an emotional response or a memory response. Um, if you look at your father, you might remember your good or bad experiences with him, and you will have an emotional response yeah. based on your memory of those experiences. Uh, a person, every part of their lives, they have a different thread of emotion and memory which connects them to each issue and which shapes their interpretation of those issues. Now, if you get into psychological warfare, it looks to interject within that experience cycle to alter the way people interpret to alter the symbols people see and to alter the interpretation of those symbols. Mm-hmm. So there's your misopia, right? Your, your worldview. Uh, there's the interjection by uh, an individual to tell you that, to tell you a new narrative to shape that worldview. And then you might have some form of direct experience around that. And then the individual interpreting that experience will tell you again how that experience relates to the worldview they just told you about. Right. And as the cycle turns on and on, your worldview is gradually changed. There are a lot of groups that look to manipulate this for their own interest, and this is the way psychological warfare works, it's the way propaganda works, it's the way disinformation works. And it's the way that, you know, big businesses do advertising, it's the way politicians do campaigning. Yeah. It's, it's the way that all groups are looking to change the way a person looks at the world and to pitch a new worldview operate. And, and of course, this isn't to say it's always bad. Sometimes it can be a good thing. Sometimes it's, you know, using factual information, you know, the way things actually are. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's telling you false information. Yeah. 
sometimes it's trying to lead you down a very dark path with a very clear agenda. And, you know, especially when we get into things like, you know, Soviet ideological subversion, for example, which is become, which was the basis of a lot of the um, grassroots, you know, revolutionary groups in the U.S. Yeah. and things like that. You know, and, and even getting into modern uh, Chinese Communist Party subversion tactics, yeah. which are based on that. You know, the, the world is a complicated place, unfortunately, and people are being targeted by all these by all these things. And I think it's very difficult for them to deal with it. Um, well, which is why you have a lot of people looking for alternate sources of information. And I think it's also why those alternate sources of information are being attacked so heavily by the, you know, powers that be, mm-hmm. I guess we could call them. Well, you say it's a, it's a complicated world, and it is. And as we had discussed before uh, the show started, people are trying to simplify it, simplify it so much into those almost like the, the yes and no. It's a, it's a yes or no question. Um, and, and it's not, it's a lot more complicated than that. And I think I was telling somebody the other night, like creating the narrative, controlling the narrative can really only be done in, in fiction writing because it is you, it is, it is, it is the world that you create and you're able to control that narrative. Unfortunately, uh, journalism and journalists today are trying to control that narrative. Like you said, they start off with the conclusion and then work their way backwards and, in order to control the narrative, you have to be a really, you got to be a good writer. And I'm afraid that good writing has become bad journalism. And I say that because obviously we want everybody who is, you know, if you're going to read something, it needs to be written well. But just because something is written well doesn't mean it's true. And I think a, a lot of journalists have gotten to the point where you're going on these journeys. Golly, I've, I've read so many articles that start off with the whole, so so-and-so sitting there, he's smoking his cigar and he's sitting in his plush leather couch. And I'm on the other side preparing my questions to ask this person. And it's like, okay, they're they're putting you into the situation and that's that's fine. But it's 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 gotten to the point where that is... That's the way journalists are writing now. And it's like, okay, now I'm taking you out of the world and I'm putting you in this particular context. And it's a, a direct narrative and it's fiction writing to an extent because now the the real world does not exist. It's just, it's just this moment in time. And when you get through and when you get through with the article, that's the truth. And in actuality, it's just a very, very minimal um, narrative based story. And it becomes it's, it's a story and it's not the it's not the world. And I'm afraid that journalists have gotten to the point where they're just writing stories. They're writing entertainment articles and they're writing these narratives that this is how you could think the hell the, the world be damned. It, it doesn't matter. Like, it's too complicated for you to understand. This is what you need to know. And it's it, it's very dangerous because now you've got this skewed point of view of, oh, this is this is the truth. This is how the world works. When in fact, no, it's just this one particular moment in time or this one particular experience. Or just this one particular story that is that is skewed. Yeah. 
So I don't know, man. I, I I don't know how you get away from that. The only and I think you've you've sort of mentioned this. I think the only way you get away from it is by people just saying I've had enough, and a lot of people are doing that. Like like I'm I'm done with these large media organizations controlling my thought process on on this we're only going to show you what we want you to see we don't want you to see the big picture we want you to see this one particular agenda and then that's it and i think people are are tired of that and they're they're moving away from that as we see with you know youtubers and and people who are saying look here's what it is we're going to give you the whole story and you can go with that um, I think that's going to be the demise of modern day journalism if there ever is going to be. And I do want to touch on this this one last thing, but if there ever is going to be the demise of modern journalism, as we see that skewed point of view today, almost like a fiction journalism, um, it's going to be based on the American people, on the readers. Um, but the last yeah, thing and, I... And, and we're, we're seeing that right now. Yeah, and, and that's good. And, and actually... And, yeah, there, there's like a, there's almost like a, an awakening happening in America right now. Yeah. Where, pe- I mean, people are starting to see through it on a large scale. Like my dad, for example, you know, he was a few, he voted for Obama. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, now he's a big Trump supporter. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, and, and he used to follow all the media. I think he still does actually. But he's like, I can't stand these guys now. They they lie so much. Yeah. And you know, people. People are seeing through it. You know, not not all Americans are hard, you know, Republican or hard Democrat. There are a lot of people, you know, who are, I'd say, in the middle, and there are a lot of people on both sides of the aisle who aren't aren't really like, you know, hardliners for yeah. their political, you know, political parties. And they're not falling and, for it. They're not falling for this. Yeah. So yeah, and so you have a lot of people now. I think who are more able to think for themselves mm-hmm. and they're, they're not they're not i think the media too i think especially during under trump they they really they really stopped trying to hide their bias yeah and i mean you know, you know think what you want about trump or you know that's, i think that's unrelated the, the point is is whether the media are trying to show you both sides of the issue whether they're trying to show you what he's actually doing i think they're not they're they're being very open with their opinions right and so people who want to find out what's actually happening, they, they're having to kind of go look at information themselves or find alternate sources of information. Yeah. You're having to go to C-SPAN. You have to, you got to watch the whole thing now. So. Yeah. Well, and, and people can now as well, which is Correct. interesting. And, and it, it only takes a couple incidents for people to turn their thinking around on this. I've, I've seen people, like one news story, they're like, yeah, I, I went and watched the original thing and they, all the media misrepresented it. They said it was this and it was actually that. No, yeah, that's true. Um, the the last thing I wanted to hit on, uh, and this is not for self promotion, but maybe it is. I don't know. Um, so, a couple a couple of years ago, I had written a piece um, on my personal site. Um, I'll go ahead and throw it out there. It's DustinBass.me, readers. If you want to go check it out. Anyways, um, BuzzFeed release. You remember when BuzzFeed released the Trump dossier, just out of hand, um, the one that Christopher. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah, the one that Christopher Steele had put together. And BuzzFeed had put together, and they said, we want the people of America to decide for themselves. And there were 
news organizations that really condemned them for doing this um, because it was very irresponsible. Uh, one, even in the Obama administration, it had already been condemned as like none of this stuff is is true. Um, and I guess the defense agencies and the intelligence agencies had already said, no, this isn't um, this dossier is full of garbage and it's full of like mistruths and everything. Well, BuzzFeed went ahead and released it, and I put together a piece, and it's sort of on on topic of what we had said, like with the competition of the 24-hour news cycle, internet, social media, and I came to the conclusion that social media provided this insight to media organizations that showed, wow, you know, people are really divided, and they want to believe what they want to believe. And I think BuzzFeed and, and now a lot of media organizations have gotten to the point where we can say just about anything that we want to say along party lines. And as long as it's either left or it's right, our readers aren't going to go anywhere. It's There is no recourse. And I predicted that like BuzzFeed will not fill a recourse on, on releasing this dossier. Um they, in fact, their readers, I, I would assume, are not going to go anywhere. I think they've taken a hit, but I think that is probably just, you know, over the course of competition over the past few years. But BuzzFeed didn't feel the pinch on releasing this dossier. I think they came to the conclusion that we're going to release it and our readers are going to gravitate to it. And it'll, I think it just showed where we were and where we are as, as an American society that as long as it's within our party, we're fine with it. And uh, Alan and I had had the, the Spanish Civil War discussion last week, um, and I used a George Orwell quote that he says, I find it very interesting that there are atrocities that people believe in and then there are atrocities that people, you know, decry. Like, if it's your side that does it, it's okay. But if it's the other side that does it, it's it's crazy. It's, it's, it's wicked. I think that's where a lot of people are today. It's like, as long as my side is doing it, I'm fine with it. And I think that was a big bad lesson, but it was a lesson learned when BuzzFeed released that. And I think... The New York Times, Washington Post, Fox, um, whoever else, National Review. I think they've gotten to the point where we're like, hey, uh, we can we can pretty much put anything out there as long as it's along the party lines and we're not going to suffer the consequences. Yeah, true. Hey, real quick, I wanted to correct myself from earlier. We were talking about the Peking Gazette and its origin during the Tang Dynasty. Tang Dynasty was from 618 to 907 AD. It's just a 500-year, five, 600-year difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Gazette, it sounds so modern. So. Yeah, well, it, it, was a la- it was the last name they used for it. They had multiple names for it over the course of history. So they, they changed it many times. But yeah, back to, the, back to the point you were on, that you have different political camps and people who are of these political camps and who are very, I'd say... Uh, unable to see outside of it it's true it's, it's a it's a very concerning place to see society in where truth no longer matters what matters is 
ideology and you know position on issues and things like this. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could say this goes back to kind of old school tribalism. You know, right. Yeah. Yeah. It does. But but it, but at the same time, I'd say it's a bit different because you know, for a lot of society today, a lot of of course, communism plays a big role in modern leftist ideology. Mm-hmm. In fact, even kind of the, the whole fascist ideology too is at the foundation of it as well. But what, one of the principles was struggle of opposites. The idea that people should fight against each other and struggle and so on. That was the basis of dialectical materialism, which is, you know, identify, invert, eliminate the middle. It was part of this whole um, Darwinian, you know, social Darwinist worldview of, you know, survival of the fittest, and that's how evolution happens. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you speed up social evolution if you believe that society is evolving towards communism, if you're a communist? Well, you, you increase the survival, you, you increase the interactions of the survival of the fittest concept. You increase the antagonisms in society. You pit people against each other. Yeah. You cause people to fight. And through those fights, right, they talked about the negation of the negation under the Hegelian dialectic. The idea that, uh, you know, as an example, uh, with the destruction of a seed, a plant grows. That through destruction, something new emerges. They talked about the negation of the negation. So by the destruction, under Marxism, the destruction of all previously existing institutions will give rise to communism, as they believed it. And so you, they want to instigate fighting. They, they don't want people to get along. They don't want people to communicate. Um, it's, it's a very serious uh, moving away from traditional dialectic, like the Socratic dialectic, mm-hmm. which talked about how uh, people of opposing viewpoints can discuss and interact and come to realize higher truths, right? The harmony of opposites was, was the basis of old dialectics. And so you, you have a situation in the world today where, yes, people are being divided. Yeah. Um, and, and not only are they being divided, but they're being pitted against each other. They're being taught that every other camp is like the most evil thing that exists in the world and mm-hmm. how they should be destroyed by any means or right. opposed by any means. And I, I think that's a very dangerous place where society would be in. Yeah, and I think and, you... Yeah, and media is playing a big role in that right now. You you mentioned the Socratic dialectic. I mean, it's university, you know, unity and diversity. And I think you see the, the destruction of that in our universities where we're shutting down diversity and we just want yeah, unity yeah. of one particular thought, which is... You know, which will destroy, will destroy everything. People, people talk about uh, diversity so often, and it drives me nuts because they just talk about diversity of of color, of the color of skin, and like, what what good does that do if you have people of various different, you know, skin colors, but they all have the exact same thought process. That's not diversity. What what really makes us diverse is the way that we think. And what really makes us American is that we can take on, you know, and debate and argue and come together regardless of our of our thought processes and listen to each other. That to me is is the real goal of 
of university, unity in diversity, is bringing a lot of different thoughts together and having those conversations and seeing where uh, where we agree and where we disagree, and then we can still move on peacefully. Yeah, well, I, I, and I think that's actually where responsible journalism has its place. Right. Um, so, I mean, selfless plug, I guess. <laughs> hey, hey, I've already made one, let's make two. <laughs> But yeah, you know, Epic Times, that's, that's kind of what we're trying to do, obviously. It's, you know, our tagline is truth and tradition. Right. And um, it, it's, not just a, it's not just an empty statement. We really try to figure out what the true situation is and tell people what it is. Yeah. And, you know, in other words, facts first, not narrative first. And, you know, and also tradition that I think traditional values did teach us a lot of things that were valuable. And, you know, not limited to any one culture. Uh, I think many cultures have, have good things in their traditions that taught self-reliance and self-sufficiency and taught us how to deal with our conflicts and how to have positive interactions with others and how to how to tolerate things like conflicts and things we don't like and while still, you know, maintaining our own happiness inside. I yeah. think Marcus Aurelius, we mentioned, is a great example of how to endure hardships in life while being unmoved. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think these old values could do a lot of good for society. Um, and, and unfortunately, I think that they're not being taught in schools. Yeah. They're not being talked about a lot in the media. Um, and even though, even though I would say one-to-one, when you, when you discuss with people, I think people either know it and love it or are craving it. Yeah. And so I, I think that there's a place for that. And I think this does tie as well into the kind of the awakening that's happening in society where there are a lot of people who are seeing through the illusion of things. They're, they're starting to see through all the games and all the manipulations. Mm-hmm. And they're starting to think for themselves. And they're starting to form their own worldviews, yeah. you know, independent of all this other stuff. And they're, they're realizing what's been done. They're realizing how things have been manipulated. Yeah. And so we'll, we'll see how this goes. I am I'm personally hopeful for mm-hmm. the direction of society. Yeah. Um, even though I think we're coming out of a very difficult place. And uh, we'll see where that leads, I guess. Yeah, I guess we will, man. I think ultimately people don't like to be bullied. So... All right, man. Well, thanks so much, Josh, for for being on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to go check out The Epic Times, go to theepictimes.com. That is T-H-E-E-P-O-C-H-T-I-M-E-S, theepictimes.com. His name is Joshua Phillip. Two Ps at the end of that name. Um, And he puts together some incredible stuff, investigative journalists, and now uh, possibly a constant on this show, which would be great. Uh, we always have a great time talking. Josh, thanks so much for, for being on the show with us. Hey, real pleasure. Thanks. All right, man. Appreciate it.